1: Welcome to New Books and Media, a podcast series of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Pete Kunze. My guest today is Matthew Crane, Associate Professor of Media and Communication at Miami University and the author of Profit Over Privacy, How Surveillance Advertising Conquered the Internet. The book was published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2021. Hi, Matthew. How are you today?
0: I'm good, Pete. Uh, Very excited to chat.
1: Well, thanks for coming on. I'm really excited to talk about this book. Um, Before we get started, can you give us a sense of your background and your training? Sure.
0: So I had been interested in media for a long time. I uh, studied media in uh, undergrad in the early 2000s. And there's some really interesting things going on during that period of time. We had this kind of massive wave of media consolidation in the uh, legacy media we had an incredible failure of journalism in the post nine eleven world, when kind of cheerleading the disastrous wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But we also had the rapid advancement of this new thing called the internet. So, I was really disillusioned with how corporate media was, uh, you know, playing out, and very excited, uh, you know, kind of par for the course uh, of during this period of the internet as a potentially more democratic form of media uh, and communication. Uh, That sounds almost like silly and naive to say in the year 2022, right? But this was a different uh, context. And it really seemed like there was a window to make a better media system. Um, So I got out of undergrad, I kind of worked for a little bit and it really became clear that in less than a decade, the promise of the internet as this revolutionary technology had Begun to evaporate very, very quickly. And I wanted to kind of find out what happened and why. So I ended up going to grad school at the University of Illinois. I studied political economy of media and communications there. And I really started to look closely at the relationship between media and capitalism. And in particular, how the capitalist media system begun, began to uh, envelop the internet, which led me to the subject area of advertising, which is the subject of the book.
1: Great. And I think as readers read your book, they'll quickly realize how even a casual use of the internet every day leads them having um, their data is being collected, right? Even the most mundane activities we do on the internet, someone's collecting our data. Um, So I'm curious if you could talk a bit about how do you study that, right? Because on the one hand, it's so pervasive. On the other hand, These companies have a vested interest in us not fully understanding it, right?
0: That is very true. Um, The conversation has kind of shifted in the last 25 years or so, which is kind of the period of time I'm looking at in the book, where initially this kind of tracking was obfuscated, it was downplayed and it really took the work of, you know, enterprising journalists and other types of researchers and investigators, to kind of peel back the curtain on some of this technology, to describe uh, the tracking that was kind of going on. Um, and you know, early on in the development of this business model of, you know, what I'm calling surveillance advertising, it was very uh, surprising to a lot of users that this data collection was going on, and it made a lot of people. Uh, uncomfortable even back then, so I am not a uh, tech person. You know, I know a little bit about how the ad tech industry works, but it is notoriously difficult to wrap your head around and very complex and changes very quickly. So, for the technical details, I do rely a lot on you know the trade press and uh, you know researchers working on the more technical side to then translate the uh, nuts and bolts of the technology uh to you know lay people like myself I- i'm less focused on the technology and more focused on uh advertising as a structure for how media and communication systems work
1: and it seems there's a good deal of archival research here too related to policy and policy makers right
0: yes i spent uh quite a few hours and multiple trips in little rock arkansas at the Clinton Presidential Library. Uh, Shout out to the archivists there. They make working there, uh, you know, easier than I thought it would be. But yeah, I poured through a lot of documents um, related to internet policy in this key era because it was really Clinton's first and second terms when the groundwork public policies for what kind of media system and what kind of communications infrastructure this internet was going to be, uh, were set into place.
1: And can you tell us about how the book evolved? Um, you know, did you hit any snags? Did it come naturally? What's the biography of your book?
0: I'm wondering if if everyone anyone has ever said yeah, it was easy to write this book. <laughs> uh, if anyone you've ever interviewed has ever said that, no, it it was it was very difficult. It took me over ten years to write. Um, just because you know, life happens, life gets in the way. It was adapted from my dissertation project, but it was also kind of. Uh, I changed it a lot, you know, in, in adapting and uh, yeah, it, it was um, in some ways it was good because I was one of the first, you know, graduate students in media communications to kind of like talk about this question of like, what happened to the internet? How did it go from this, uh, you know, government funded information resource to uh, suddenly this system for pervasive consumer surveillance? So. Uh, In in some ways that's good because you can make a lot of claims and you can kind of, you know, test out some arguments, uh, uh, but you also don't have much uh, earlier work to be in conversation with or to, to, to work from. So, yeah, it was, it was a challenge and uh, I had a lot of great mentorship and the people at uh, Minnesota and the reviewers really helped me, you know, polish the thing uh, into something uh, better than it was in the dissertation, that's for sure.
1: And you anticipated my next question, which is in reading your book, it comes through very early and very clearly that the internet didn't have to be this way. So what are the major things in your mind that went wrong in your research? Like, let me reframe that. As you were doing your research, what did you realize were some of the major things that went wrong with the development of the internet, particularly from a policy and regulation perspective, right?
0: Right, so there's a couple of ways to kind of approach this question. Um, one, you can look at, uh, telling a historical narrative and my approach really looks at, you know, key public policy decisions made in the 1990s. Uh, and then you can also zoom back and say, you know, the internet, we have this impulse to treat it as a new system. Uh, and a lot of that revolutionary rhetoric that I was talking about earlier kind of gets swept up in the newness of it all. But there's a lot to be said about how it is a very predictable outgrowth of our corporate media system in the United States that's been heavily funded and influenced by marketers and, and the advertising system. So there's a lot of continuity and there's a lot of structural inertia from a political economic media system that is in large part designed to deliver audiences to advertisers but at the same time there are real choices to be made and those what a new system is you know moving from public development into the into the more uh, private sector uh and those choices are generally made in the realm of public policy so there's a range of moments you know uh, i could talk about i'll just highlight maybe two to to uh to put some more details to your your question here. The first really important moment is when, and this actually began in the late 1980s, which is just the privatization of the internet infrastructure, like who's gonna own the pipes? And we're gonna make decisions, and this is the George H.W. Bush administration, and then kind of like followed up by early Clinton administration decisions saying we, you know, develop this in the Defense uh, Department. It was briefly run by the National Science Foundation. There were proposals on the ground to maybe have it be run by the Department of Education. But instead, we're gonna hand it over to private telecommunications companies and let them own it. Uh, and the rationale for that is largely that we want this to become an engine of uh, economic development for the United States. So Clinton is elected in a recession and in fact, all of the, you know, since the late 1970s into the 80s, into the 90s, the United States economy is essentially like losing out in a multipolar world to places like Japan and Germany and other places. And Clinton uh, sees technological development in the Internet in particular, in addition with uh, the unleashing of finance and banking and other areas in the economy as a way to create a new kind of global Position of dominance for the United States economy. So we're going to privatize the backbone, and then commercialize the in, the application layer on top of that. So that 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 this conversation, uh, which is laid out, you know, very clearly in a lot of White House documents, et cetera, was essentially boils down to the phrase "Let the private sector lead this development." So it's not going to be a public service, but we're going to get public benefits because it is privatized. So you know, the dot-com bubble ensues, a lot of people experimenting with advertising and advertising begins to like wash over the internet. And by the late 1990s, you know, before Google, before Facebook, before the companies who we now associate with surveillance advertising, there were a whole bunch of companies doing proto-surveillance advertising. And this late 90s moment, which is the end of Clinton's second term, is the second kind of key moment because there's actually a backlash. And journalists, activists, uh, academics are raising the alarm bells and saying, "Look what's happening on the internet! Like nobody really signed up for this." And Congress looked at this very, very closely. They held, you know, almost a dozen hearings. There were a bunch of different policy programs uh, floated. They passed a very weak bill to protect children's privacy briefly, mm-hmm. uh, but then they essentially uh, decided they were going to let the private sector lead once again, and they were going to not produce a uh, a national privacy uh, regime and instead self-regulation was going to carry the day and that is the environment that we still find ourselves in the United States.
1: Yeah I think one of the that's something that's so valuable about this book is I think um, when my students and I discuss social media they think of you know Zuckerberg and Elon Musk as the villains that tainted it right but in many ways it was kind of baked in from the beginning in terms of regulatory failures and failures of government officials to kind of step up and um, put safeguards in place. Um, There are two questions I have that go off in different directions, but I'll start with the first one based on what you were saying kind of at the end of your answer there. Are there any heroes in this story? Were there any folks who were trying to warn us where we were heading? Any Jeremiah's who were like, this is not great. Please don't. Um, because I think that one of the things it does is point to advertisers and um, government officials kind of being in cahoots. Um, Who were the folks that were like, no, this can't work or it shouldn't work this way?
0: Yeah, I like that question. You know, one of the great things about like a super detailed historical analysis is that you can find these kind of characters that are kind of, you know, under the main current of how people understand uh, internet development, et cetera. And one of the more interesting things I found like doing that archival research in the uh, in the White House documentation around these issues was that you know, early, early on, like 1993, 1994, there were folks at the uh, in, in various kind of regulatory um, oversight roles in the White House, uh, in the Department of Commerce, et cetera, who understood telecommunications and understood that the history of telecommunications and media in this country has Really have been about, about you know concentration of power, right? AT and and you know Walt Disney and Time Warner and these kind of companies that would you know, do all they could to really remove as much competition as possible. And they were looking at well, what could possibly happen if we just let the internet completely regulate itself by the companies uh, that you know create businesses there uh, and essentially let consumers fend for themselves uh, in terms of privacy. And there were folks within the administration saying, you know, we have to have a baseline privacy protection; otherwise, uh, we're not going to have uh, a b- because we're not going to have a market that is competitive. Ultimately, they knew right away that these markets tend to uh, produce, you know, a set of winners or uh, pseudo monopolists, and they knew that they uh, are going to do everything that they can to monetize data, and that if that becomes the business model. Uh, we're going to have all sorts of problems down the road. So it it wasn't like we woke up in 2016 or 2018. And, you know, with this book, Cambridge Analytica Scandal or whatever else might have been like making headlines and all of a sudden everyone cared about privacy, right? It's like regulators knew that these problems were likely to happen. So it was just a question of what priorities are we going to put into public policy? Whose voices are we going to listen to and whose voices are we going to uh, ignore or downplay. So, you know, these initial set of, you know, nameless regulators, uh, I guess they do have names. I just don't know them. <laughs> you know, we're, we're we're making these calls early on. And then, you know, at that later moment, you know, there were a really small group of like dogged media activists, I'm thinking of the Center for Media Educa- Education, um, the Electronic Privacy Information Center or EPIC, there's just kind of like proto-digital uh, advocacy groups focused on civil liberties that decided to dig into these privacy issues very early on and uh, created a, I wouldn't say it was a mass political movement, but they created a kind of beltway advocacy movement to put this on the agenda of legislators, and they did so successfully. The legislation didn't turn out so great, but they were definitely there uh, calling the alarm very early on.
1: And that actually feeds nicely into my my second question, which is, um, as you're laying out the exigency of your your study, uh, you mentioned the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and you make a striking statement. You say, uh, Facebook had not been hijacked. Its platform had been used as intended. Can you explain that a little bit more for us?
0: Right. So this is in the context of this thing called the tech lash, which was this kind of moment of public rebuke of the tech giants, and you know, people were suddenly kind of uh, seemingly suddenly uh, turning their backs on Silicon Valley, which had for you know a decade just been um, lauded as you know democratic champions, job creators, innovators. They gave us free and useful tools, and they could do no wrong. And so, at, at the public the public opinion on these companies started to shift through these kind of series of scandals, right? And uh, I- I'm trying to make the point that, you know, whether it's disinformation or political polarization or whatever kind of scandal de jour, you know, hacking, et cetera, uh, data breaches, um, discriminatory advertising practices, it all plugs into the same, you know, digital influence machine. And the purpose of digital advertising is not that different than the purpose of mass media advertising, which is to try to speak to a target audience and try to influence their perceptions and behaviors if you can. So the basic business model has always been uh, about influencing behavior, or you might even call that at the extreme end, uh, manipulation of consumers if possible and targeting their vulnerabilities. So if we think about that as sort of the reason uh, these, companies have been so successful in generating advertising dollars we can start to think okay it's not necessarily that a given ceo is a villain or that uh some engineering team made a bad mistake it's a structural issue which is baked into the business model uh and therefore a you know a more uh, difficult problem to solve than you know just putting a band-aid on something
1: and now google and facebook dominate this game of online advertising, right? Uh, Surveillance advertising. What are the consequences of that domination?
0: Well, there are many. Um, One of the most striking is uh, that our most important sources of journalism in this country, uh, particularly smaller and regional newspapers are in an absolute death spiral. Um, It's a multifaceted problem. But the elephant in the room is the fact that these giant uh, advertising platforms are, you know, and Amazon should be included in that now too. They're a major uh, kind of sneaky uh, mix in that advertising duopoly or triopoly. They are taking home the massive lion's share of most of the the ad revenue. And so, uh, you know, there's half as many journalists working in newspapers today as there were 15 years ago. Newspapers are closing. Uh, We have all these studies of news deserts popping up all over the country. Um, There is an argument to be made that if the advertising space was more competitive uh, and less reliant on uh, kind of 360 uh, total omnipresent surveillance that gives the bigger companies more advantages in the marketplace, that the journalism crisis would be potentially in a different place today so that's definitely one major outcome the second one is that uh it kind of goes back to what you said earlier is that consumers have very little uh opportunities and i shouldn't even say consumers just anyone who lives uh in 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 you know a modern society where they need to use digital communications uh which is pretty much everyone unless you're you know, living in a cave somewhere uh, has very little opportunity to opt out. There's, it's a what Mark Andrejev calls digital enclosure, and uh, it's a it's this infrastructure that kind of works behind the scenes. And there's few companies, and they all have the same business model. So mm. you can choose to use uh, Instagram, or you can choose to use TikTok, or you can choose to use Snapchat, but their business model is exactly the same.
1: And between um, Google and Facebook and Amazon, it seems that surveillance advertising or how they approached it, there were some differences, particularly with Google and and the emergence of adverse. Can you talk about that?
0: Sure. So kind of coming out of the collapse of the dot-com bubble, I mean, one of the arguments I make in the book is this... The the infrastructure and the political, economic, regulatory structures were all in place before the dot com bubble collapsed in the early two thousands. And the tech giants we have today literally picked up the pieces by buying the remnants of those companies. Um, Google's trajectory is very interesting. It started in like the late nineteen nineties. It didn't take advertising uh, for a couple of years. in its investors said, you gotta have a business model at some point. So they adopted advertising. The ads that they used were contextual. So if you search for travel uh, to uh, Colorado, you know, particular parks or particular hotels would show up as ads just based on that keyword. They didn't have to collect any data. Um, but as they plateaued and quickly dominated that search engine marketplace and the, that, those very useful advertising uh, keywords, they realized that uh, as a public company, we've got to continue to grow. Uh, Social media started popping up on the scene with MySpace and uh, uh, Facebook. And their pitch was a little bit different. We're going to do digital ads, but we're going to know everything about you and your friends and your all types of social connections. And we're going to make those ads determinations based on that data that we've collected. So Google, uh, you know, had to in order to continue its upward trajectory of growth, move into that surveillance advertising business. And so it bought DoubleClick, which was kind of the main uh, character in the first part of the book, who pioneered a lot of these things. And Google then suddenly became uh, a surveillance advertiser in its own right.
1: And and this ties in nicely to, um, one of the things I appreciate about your book is it seems nowadays, as as you acknowledge, um, many of us in, media studies refer to things as being well that's neoliberalism, right? It's neoliberalism at work. Um but we rarely unpack that term. Um it's just become kind of a a go-to. Uh and you point to in your book how um you're trying to work us through how neoliberal thinking got institutionalized, right? Like how does it kind of get cemented into uh policy, into regulation or or lack thereof, I should say. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how neoliberal capitalism and contemporary economic policy helped to create surveillance advertising?
0: Yeah, I mean, another way you can think about it is the internet is neoliberalism made concrete into a technology, because the you know the, like you say, there's it's maybe one of the most overused terms uh, in you know all of critical scholarship. So it's. In some ways, it means everything and nothing. So mm. I try to show how uh, looking uh, at the work of uh, some really excellent historians like Lily, Lily Geismar, who traced the de- evolution of the Democratic Party throughout the 1960s, 70s, 80s to the kind of Clinton revolution of the new mm. Democrats, how they kind of turn away from uh, public uh, solutions and, and become a more a, about a party of uh supposed opportunity and meritocracy in, the, in those things. But the two threads of neoliberalism, I think that are most clearly observed like within this surveillance advertising space is just one, let the market sort it out, right? The the idea, one of the animating ideas is that markets are the best method to allocate uh, resources. Uh, it's the best way to uh, ensure that the right uh, people get the right opportunities and to reward hard work. and and the government is this kind of bumbling sheriff and uh, is largely inefficient, inefficient and messes things up. That is really the animating guideline for a regime of self-regulation, right? We're gonna let the companies and we're gonna let markets sort it out. If people want to uh, protect their privacy, then market will respond to that and create a privacy enhancing uh, search engine or a social media site or whatever the case may be. And um, obviously, that's not true uh, for for a whole variety of reasons. But that's kind of one dimension. The second one is, you know, a uh, uh, part of neoliberalism that, that people always talk about is to pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality, right? It's up to the individual to go, go out there and forge um, their way in the world, and it's not the job of government or the nanny state to inhibit freedoms through regulation. It's the job to you know, give people the room and give companies the room to go out there and forge their own destinies. And so this kind of plays through the privacy space and the advertising space in this regime, which is called noticing choice. And the idea is companies are supposed to tell us their pri- privacy practices, and then we're supposed to choose whether or not we want to engage with them or not. So it's an, it, 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 the decision on protecting your privacy is an individual choice that consumers make in the marketplace. Um, one of uh, the researchers who I learn a lot from is Natalie Marischal and she talks about how, you know, in a lot of areas of our life, uh, the government does step in, right? We don't, con- individual consumers don't uh, test drugs for bad reactions. They don't check to see if a car seat is gonna be safe in an accident. We have regulatory agencies that do that. And so that near sort of bootstraps mentality, free markets is the essence of uh, a lax privacy regime that lets these companies essentially run unchecked, uh, at least in the
1: United States. And while we're talking about capitalism, uh, at the outset in particular, you're kind of putting yourself in conversation with um, Shoshana Zuboff and this notion of surveillance capitalism. How do you see your work kind of extending and maybe even revising some of the arguments she's laying out in that book?
0: Yeah, that's, you know, that's a really interesting book. It's a very powerful argument that she makes in a lot of ways. Um, And the whole idea of, uh, you know, buying and selling behavioral futures is a really interesting way to understand uh, the, you know, the influence uh, selling uh, that these companies are really claiming to be all about. Um, where I depart from her is the idea of a surveillance capitalism as a break from the past or as any kind of, uh, new development. It, it it's, you know, the, the array of, uh, consumer surveillance is certainly mind bending, certainly made, uh, more omnipresent and seemingly you know le- more inescapable than in previous sort of media eras i don't dispute that but if you take a longer view of what advertising's role has been in media and in uh you know a capitalist political economy then surveillance advertising is just an acceleration of what advertising's role has been in media and in capitalism since you know the turn of the 20th century. So it's, I want to push back on this narrative that, you know, this is uh, somehow uh, regular capitalism is, was, was working just fine. And now we're in surveillance capitalism and this is bad all of a sudden, right? Uh, It's not exactly, you know, and and that's definitely a character, uh, you know, a caricature of Zuboff's argument, but there is this impulse to say, you know, what's, 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 what's happening now is, totally different than what's happened before. And there's a lot of continuities there, Um, yeah.
1: I mean, it seems one of the things that's important for your study too is the strategies of surveillance, right? I mean, as you were speaking, I was thinking about the role of advertisement in radio and in television, of course, right? Um, But one of the things you talk about in terms of the mechanisms for surveillance advertising is the cookie, um, which is one of those terms where we kind of understand it, but maybe don't completely. Um, So uh, I'm gonna ask you to be my teacher for a moment. Can you explain to me like, what are cookies and the role they play in surveillance advertising?
0: Right, Uh, cookies are just a way for a web server or a website or an app to remember who you are. When Tim Berners-Lee created the World Wide Web in the late uh, 1980s and into the 1990s, it was an anonymous platform. Every website you visited, uh, even if you visited it three times in a row on the same day, understood you as a new person every single time. That was uh, a problem that needed to be solved to do business, to create uh, a retail environment, to do all kinds of transactions online. And the story I tell in the book about cookies is how it was developed really as kind of a general purpose technology, but the engineers who created it were not really interested in, uh, personalized advertising, and they thought that was actually an invasion of privacy. And there was actually kind of a battle within these kind of like esoteric standards making communities early on about whether we should let uh, advertising companies use the cookie in order to track people across different types of websites over time. Uh, they lost that battle, and you know the rest, as they say, is history. It's also interesting that uh, the cookie is kind of on its way out as a as the signature kind of piece of tracking technology. Um, but it's being replaced by, you know, all sorts of other mechanisms. So again, you know, I I think it's good to try to understand particular technologies, but uh, they are dynamic, they can change. And so, you know, what do we understand advertising uh, in terms of a uh, political economic structure for media and communication systems? That's That tells you, you know, just knowing that the internet is largely supported by advertising tells you a lot about how that system was designed and who it's meant to serve. Um, And that's, you know, I think more important than uh, any one given piece of ad tech.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the ethics. I don't know if you saw this week on Twitter, but um, it seems a former engineer, I believe, for Twitter um, had mentioned how at one point he was asked to develop a technology, I believe, for a, a... an affiliate of Twitter that would actually track when people were leaving their houses and, and he was like, you know, where do we end this, right? Where do we stop? Um, and that actually propelled him to, to move away from it. But, um you know, it's interesting to think about these various stakeholders, right? Including the engineers themselves, were like, you know, this is not what we signed up for. It's not what we believe in. um And how the capitalist impulse comes in and the profit um, pushes one to make uh, business decisions that are at odds with, um, the desire for technologies that can actually help people, right? Mm-hmm. In reading your conclusion, you follow um, scholars like Victor Picard and Philip Napoli and thinking through internet policy and the need to perhaps rethink it um, and perhaps even the internet itself, right? Um, so what do you see the new internet or even this alternative to the internet as it now operates looking like?
0: Well, uh, that's a tough one. I, I, I. I... I think the ship is already sailed in terms of what this is going to be. Um, I, that doesn't mean I don't think we can intervene. Mm-hmm. I mean, Europe, uh, the European Union is making some interesting uh, strides in privacy legislation. States like California, uh, Illinois has a very strong uh, law on biometric data collection. So there are interventions that can be made. Um, uh, the, the details of that uh, and the likelihood of you know what what could possibly be done with our extremely dysfunctional political system does not give me much hope um, in the short term. So, uh, what you know, I think where critical scholars uh, interested in this kind of like what's next question should be really paying really close attention to what's happening uh, at Meta with Mark Zuckerberg um now there's a lot to say here but kind of the short version is that they they kind of hit a major roadblock in many ways with their ad business uh not the least of which involves uh some antagonistic moves by Apple to kind of undercut Facebook's business model uh by offering some privacy protections uh in some ways across their iOS uh devices and iPhones etc and so one lens to look through like why is Zuckerberg sinking billion into building this kind of, you know, virtual reality space or the metaverse, um, which, you know, kind of looks like we bowling right now, but, you know, we're not (laughs) sure exactly how it's going to turn out is that he wants to create the next internet and he wants to be in control of it at the device level so that he can do the data collection that has made that company's fortune uh, unhindered by, Uh, other competitors like Apple or, uh, uh, you know, other kind of changing market conditions. So that just reiterates the fact that, you know, capitalism is probably not going to innovate its way out of uh, surveillance, advertising. And it is the role of public policy to design communications and media systems that work for everyone and don't produce the kind of negative social externalities that are so glaringly obvious to anyone who's paying attention to the internet's business model today.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like you kind of answered part of this question, but I'm curious if you see other areas for surveillance, advertising, research, like what, what do you? what's left to be done? I, mean, I don't want to say what's left to be done. What are some areas that you would like to see people take up or some conversations that you yourself might be pursuing um, in better understanding this phenomenon?
0: Yes, I, I think one of the most interesting areas is now that uh, television is kind of, Taking up the surveillance advertising model uh, as it moves to streaming, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of really interesting things happening in streaming television right now. As it more m- m- more moves more fully online, Netflix is flailing around because it's reaching consumer or subscriber saturation in the United States. The, s- the stock market has suddenly decided we don't love you anymore, and so what are they doing? Uh, they're introducing an advertising tier, right? And they're not just going to reproduce mm, television advertising from 1960. They're going to bring on, uh, in the footsteps of other companies like Roku and uh, Tubi and others, these surveillance capacities into the advertising space. Even if they don't want to, and Reed Hastings has said, we're not we're not really interested in doing creepy stuff. But the you know the market will push them in that direction. That's one of the Uh, outcomes of having this become the default business model for media and technology uh, systems is that there is a structural drive to collect as much data as possible on your consumers and sell the capacity to reach them and to target them and influence them. Because if you're not doing it, uh, somebody else is going to do it. uh, And that's what marketers want. So I think there's a lot of room to understand what's going on in television and, and how this model gets replicated in across other media formats. And then another thing is just, I really think, uh, and I'm trying to pick up the ball on this a little bit, is to try to understand in a more concrete way how this has affected journalism and how this has affected local newspapers. Uh, The crisis of news is something that's, uh, you know, deeply troubling. And I think um, media scholars could, you know, look more closely at this issue as it relates to uh, of the internet and the business model of advertising more broadly for uh, something to support something so important as journalism.
1: And is that the main thing you're working on now? Or is that a side project for what you're doing at the moment?
0: Yeah, no, I'm just I'm kind of like, I'm in the, the very early exploratory phases of projects all on both of those lines. So um, that's one of the joys of like, releasing your book is that you get a little bit of breathing room to say, okay, what am I going to do now? <laughs> So it's a nice uh, problem to have.
1: And then you get an interviewer like me that's like, "What are you doing? What, what what's coming next? <laughs> Explain yourself." Yeah. I'm like, a <laughs> "You're not old... gonna hold
0: me to it, right?"
1: <laughs> no, but uh, you know, I, I like to serve as the the TMP committee, I guess, when I speak to new uh, recent authors. But thank you very much for your time today, Matthew. The book is Profit Over Privacy: How Surveillance Advertising Conquered the Internet, available now at the University of Minnesota Press and other online booksellers. This is Pete Kunze, and this has been New Books and Media on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.